This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm the rabbi's husband, Mark Gerson, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today I am so delighted to be joined by my good friend, Pastor Jose Diaz, who I met, I think, two years ago in Israel. When we were together on a trip of Eagle's Wings. Yeah, it was uh, amazing, actually. We were in Jerusalem together, and uh, we sat together at the Shabbat dinner over uh, overlooking their Jerusalem United Chatzalah. That's right. That's right. That's where, that's where we first met, and we formed a, a great friendship ever since. When I asked uh, Jose, um, who is a student of the Bible, as we'll see, to choose which passage in the Bible he wanted to discuss, he said he wanted to discuss the passage in Genesis where God made the Sabbath day holy. Jose, if you just want to give us some uh, context for uh, Genesis 2-3. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant passage. And it's, it's one that my wife and I, we've been walking out the realities of this passage for the last few years. You know, being a pastor, doing a lot with worship, one of the attributes of God that we talk about, sing about, mention the most is the holiness of God. This idea of God being holy, sanctification. And one of the things that I find remarkable, there's a thing in theology called the law of first mention. So the first time something is mentioned, that is Right. That is not only the most important, but it becomes the plumb line from which the rest of the times when this idea or this concept is mentioned, we have to go back to this first mention. Very interesting, Jose, that you would bring that up because uh, this morning we recorded an episode of The Rabbi's Husband with Alan Dershowitz on the Akeda, and we talked about how the Akeda, which of course is the story about Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain, the Akeda has the first mention of the word love. It's the first time the word worship is translated worship in English. Interesting. So yeah, so you were saying the, the law of first mention. How does it apply to Genesis 2-3? Well, it's the first time we see the word holy or sanctified in the Bible. Very so this is brilliant. So here we have, we know God is holy. And, and in our minds, right, the perfect example of holiness is God. And, 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 you know, it's the thing he's called the most. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of God. Everybody is singing holy. But our introduction to holy has nothing, it's not about a person or a place, it's about time, it's holy time. And the Sabbath is the first time we are introduced to this concept of something being set apart, of something being different. And, and, and here's, for me, the most fascinating thing, both within Christianity and in Judaism, it's not talking about a place. Before we ever know that Jerusalem is holy, that Israel's holy, or, or that anybody's holy, we understand that time is holy, and specifically rest, that God calls rest holy. Now, very interesting, but let's try to understand what the Torah means by rest, because I think it's commonly misunderstood. Let's just go back to, to not 2-3, but just one, one verse before, 2-2. Two, two. By the seventh day, God completed the work which he had done, and he abstained on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. So obviously he did some work on the seventh day. So how could he have both worked on the seventh day and have rest? And I think it's that what Rabbi David Foreman says is that you can't create the absence of something. So rest 
can't be the absence of work. It must be something active. And I think, therefore, what God creates is purposeful rest. Because mm. God creates rest, but if rest is the absence of work, it doesn't have to be creative. Therefore, he creates purposeful rest, which is not taking a nap, but, well, Jose, what do you think it is? I, I think it's brilliant what you're saying. And actually, I was thinking about this earlier today in preparation, and and, and I wrote this down. I said, what is rest? Because I think, I think, especially in like Western society, you know, we think of Friday, Saturday, I'm going to sleep in. I'm going to, I'm going to binge watch my favorite Netflix show and I'm going to eat, uh, you know, cereal, you know, at 12 in the afternoon, but that's actually not rest. That's laziness, which we know God is very serious. He's God does not like laziness. Right. And so I wrote this as what is rest? And for me, it's this, it's total dependency on and trust in God. It's actually active. It's this, it's making this declaration of I am man and God is God. And if you take a how does this play in God resting? God himself had to trust that all he had created was good, and he had to decide this is a good stopping point. And so what did God do? I don't think he did nothing. I think God then began to enjoy that which he had created. Specifically, in my opinion, was the last thing he created. And I think there's a beautiful picture going from day six to day seven. The last thing God creates is humanity. And so right. I believe what God's going to do now on day seven which is what we're supposed to reciprocate, is God then stops, and I believe he enjoys Adam, and now we have that as an example, that the purpose of the Sabbath is that we have permission to take, not that we're not conscious of God throughout the, you know, throughout the week, which, you know, Tuesdays, you do a brilliant Torah study, there's, there's, we live in God consciousness, but one day a week, we say, I'll only be conscious of God, I'm choosing to stop, and I'm choosing to give my emotional spiritual attention to God. And, and and in so doing, to try to contemplate, how am I acting in God's world? How did I do so last week? How can I do better next week? And I think one of the, one of the analogies which we use with our children is we say to our children, you know, take a, a, a piece of art or a story you might be working on. If you just kept going on that art or on that story, would it get better or worse? And the answer, of course, is it would get worse because at some point you have to stop and contemplate, what should I do next? How can I be better? And if you don't stop and you don't contemplate, you're going to be worse next week, not better. Absolutely. You know, I have a friend of mine. He's, a, he's an amazing songwriter and, and the Christian world's name is Jason Upton. And he'll tell so many different stories how he'll write a song for three years, four years, five years. He'll, he'll, he'll take years to write a song. Wow. And he has, a, he has a great one. It's two verses and a chorus. But he, it took him three years to write the second verse because he wanted to have time to reflect and to live out what he wrote in the first verse. And after several years, and he'd been performing the song and doing it, he came back to it with now three years worth of history and fresh perspective. And now the song was able to be completed. And I think it's, it's a beautiful principle, whether it's business, family, anything, taking a day just to stop and to reflect, and really to take account of one's life. I, I think the Sabbath is actually God's gift that we have permission to stop and just take account of our life with our family, of our life before God, of our life before humanity. Absolutely. Now let's talk about the way Christians honor, guard, and celebrate the Sabbath, um, and the way Jews do. I mean, the way Jews do is, you know, as, as you know, you've been in our home on, on this is typical of broadly observant Jews, uh, Friday night, sundown, everything stops. We'll enjoy 
the blessings with our family, we'll light the candle, the blessings over the wine, the blessing over the bread, we'll bless the children, most importantly, we'll sing Aishas Chayel, the ode to the Jewish woman, a few other things, then we'll enjoy a Sabbath meal, and then Saturday, we'll engage in Torah study and do other kinds of activities with family and friends, but won't work. What do Christians do? Well, I, that's a loaded question. And it's, to be honest, myself, and you know my brother-in-law, Pastor Dave, who pastors the church that we're part yeah. of here just outside of Philadelphia, we 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 wrestle with this. Because, so here's what happened, you know, a little bit of church history. And and, and this is something that's, it, it's 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 an eye-opening truth. And this is a lot of the work we've been doing together. You know, I know you've been doing with Eagle's Wings. It's the fact that in reality, Christians don't have a Sabbath. We really don't. Many people will, will instinctively say, well, then what's Sunday? Well, but see, so here's the problem. Anybody in ministry will tell you there's nothing restful about Sunday morning. There's nothing restful. If you are leading a ministry, Sunday is exhausting. It's actually a work day. And here's well, the proof of it. That's the same thing for rabbis on Saturday. But I would say I've, I've been in, I mean, I've spoken in uh, uh, Robert Stern's church, for instance, on uh, Sunday morning, and it, it's a beautiful service. I mean, people aren't working. They go there, they worship, they sing, they're in community. Now, the, the clergy's working, but the parishioners aren't. Yes, but but I think the concept of rest, the understanding of it being a Sabbath rest, isn't there. Interesting. I, I'll give you I'll give you a perfect example. And, and again, this is like this is a lot of those dynamics that we're wrestling with. And, and I'll say this, and then just to give a little bit of historical context here for a second, I know tons of Christians who go to church on Sunday and then go to work Sunday night. It's it's not it's not viewed as a time of rest. Again, it's a concept of holy time and holy place. So what's happened in Christianity is we've replaced holy time for holy place. And so I go to my church on Sunday, which, listen, I love Sunday morning church. I'm a Christian. Man. I, I enjoy it. You know, for us, it's our time to come celebrate our faith. It's that corporate uh, expression, that corporate celebration. But here's an important thing. For the first 300 years of Christian history, if a Gentile converted to Christianity, if a Gentile decided to follow Jesus, right, as Lord, as Savior, as Rabbi, they observed the Sabbath, not on Sunday morning. Friday night to Saturday, we have several scriptures in the New Testament where it's clear. Like, for example, one of them in Acts chapter 15, it's the first time we begin to see Gentiles born again. And the early apostles did not believe a Gentile could be born again. Did not believe it. So, so it's amazing how things have turned. In the early church, the question was, could a Gentile follow Jesus? Today, the church is so backwards, and we say, can a Jew follow Jesus? And this isn't a conversation about that, but for 300 years, Gentiles essentially adopted Jewish practices because for 300 years, Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism. It was not viewed as a separate thing. In Acts chapter 15, one of the, the, the they create this uh, uh, kind of laws for Gentile believers, and one of the statements they make is, and don't worry, they'll get Moses every Sabbath. So it was understood that if you were a, a Gentile Christian, you went to synagogue on Saturday and you studied the Torah with Jews. What happens is, is persecution begins to rise against Jews, and Rome begins to be Christianized. Certain Jewish practices become illegal. And so we, we made observing the Sabbath illegal. And it was changed 300 years after Christ, where now Sunday's the Sabbath to, you know, to celebrate the, the resurrection of Jesus. And there's political reasons behind why they do that. But, but the truth is this, for the most part today, and I've been, I've been thinking about this all week, he's preparing for this, I don't believe that, that the biblical understanding and concept of rest, I don't believe we're seeing it in Christianity. Case in point is this, 
one of the number one conversations I have with leaders globally, Mark, I've been to 30 something countries. I yeah. get to minister with leaders all over the world is burnout. Most Christian ministers are exhausted. And I get, look, doing ministry, whether you're a rabbi or a pastor, it, you know, it, it requires a lot. But most pastors are burning out. Most pastors are exhausted. There's no day off. And, and by day off, more than just having a day to sleep in, but giving that, giving yourself that day to stop and to enjoy, to reflect. And I, I really believe that one of the biggest detriments to the development of Christianity is breaking away from the under the biblical understanding of the Sabbath. Incredible statement. One of my favorite statements. Because the Jews kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath kept the Jews. Yes. It's a remarkable statement. The fact is, the more I've been learning about Judaism, connecting with Jewish friends, Jewish leaders in America and a lot in Israel, I've been hit almost like somebody throwing cold water is, we have Sunday morning service. It's phenomenal. But we don't keep the Sabbath, if that makes sense. Well, it's, you know, like, it's torturing you say that because I remember on one of the Eagle's Wings trips I attended and, and Eagle's Wings brings... Um, well, over the course of a year, of a typical year, this is obviously the COVID year, but a typical year, hundreds of uh, primarily but not exclusively young evangelical leaders to Israel. At the end of one of the trips, I asked a bunch of the um, young uh, evangelical pastors, what was the, their favorite and most meaningful part of the trip? And they said, uh, Shabbat dinner. Absolutely. I know so I'd many I'd say Shabbat pastors. dinner. You could do that at our house anytime you want. They but said, that's no, not the a most part of meaningful our part of our experience was Shabbat dinner. But that's not part of our culture. It hasn't been part of our culture for 2,500, I mean, 1,500 years. There's not been a Shabbat dinner. I know pastors that the thing that that they apply the most, uh, A, of course, Zionism, that's our biggest thing. We want to see Christian Zionists. But I know so many leaders that now, Friday night, they stop, they shut, you can't call them, and they have a Shabbat dinner with their family. These are guys that have been in ministry for decades, for years, that have PhDs, that have- Fascinating. You know, so when did that start? Was that, is that in the last five years or have they always been I, doing it? No, in the last, I, I, some of them within the last year. I mean, these are pastors that are they're coming on these tours with us to Israel and they're seeing the land. And, and it's, it, think about what you just said. You have a pastor who is a follower of Jesus, teaches on the life of Jesus. He's going to, the, to see the sites that Jesus lived in. And the thing that impacted him the most was eating a, a gefilte fish on the rooftop of United Khatala. That was the most trend for so many leaders. That changed their entire paradigm. And I've had so many leaders, I've had conversations where the number one thing that they struggle with is this. Why did we get rid of the Sabbath? And what's the answer? Well, the answer is, I think... It's just the historical circumstances that you spoke of? Yeah. And so, so then that opens up a whole can of worms. So why did we get rid of a lot of things? Why do we celebrate Easter and not the Passover? Why do we celebrate Christmas and not Hanukkah? What, why the disconnect? And, and so now what happens is the Sabbath, because now there's this, this forced time of reflection, we begin to realize that there's a giant schism that needs to be dealt with. And, and, and again, it's, it's, and it's, it's the replacement theology. It's all the different things. But we've gotten rid of something that God gave humanity as a gift. You know, and I don't know, you know, as far as I know, Adam was not a Jew. As far as we know it, right? It's not a Jew. So God, no Jews. Didn't, yeah, God didn't give the Sabbath to the Jews. God gave the Sabbath. Right. It, was, it was supposed to be a part of being human. And Isaiah, of, in Isaiah 56 is very clear that this is for, for everybody. Absolutely. But the fact is, it's not right now. It's viewed as a Jewish observance. It's a, it's a Jewish thing to do. But no, it's actually a part of being humanity. 
And I think one of the things that we're that I believe we're seeing on the earth right now within Christianity specifically is we've gotten rid of something that I believe is supposed to be a core part of the human experience. And so what happens is if you get rid of something that's a core part of the human experience, I think you lose a major element of what it means to be human. And I think we're seeing this, Mark. I mean, we're seeing this all over the world. People are becoming less human sometimes. Well, it, it's it's very interesting because um, what we talked about is what, what the pastors say their most meaningful part of the trip to Israel is. Also, whenever um, one of my f- pastor friends who I met through Eagle's Wings or pastor friends I met elsewhere, whenever they come to our home for Shabbat dinner, they almost invariably leave saying, I want to do this with my family each week. Some people have, have taken, I've asked, like, can we take some of your Shabbat prayer books so that we can do it from from the book so we know how to do it? And of course, but it's interesting that Shabbat is uh, unique in that regard. I mean, pastors wouldn't come for Rosh Hashanah and say, we got to do Rosh Hashanah, but they come for the Sabbath. And there's something so intrinsically holy about the Sabbath. There's something that's so clearly a gift from God that when people are exposed to it, both Jews and Christians, because even when Jews who don't keep the Sabbath, when, when they're given the opportunity, they say, you know, there's every reason to do this and no reason not to do this. The Jews and the Christians have effectively the same reaction. It's as though the Sabbath is calling all of it, all of us to it and to God. Yeah, you know, it's brilliant. You said that I've got a dear friend of mine who lives in Tel Aviv. He's an Orthodox Jewish guy named Jay Schultz, made Aliyah from New York. His mission is to essentially provoke secular Jews in Israel to keep the Sabbath. That is his mission. And I think it's a brilliant mission. Look, if we can look at something real quick, even in the passage that I think is 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 brilliant. I was reflecting on this before our call today, and it's this. Go back to day six. Go back to when God creates man, right? So Genesis uh, 1, 26, mm-hmm. I'm reading out of the New King James. It says that God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, right? So we understand that part of the purpose of being man, of being a human is to 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 walk in not just not just to carry the image of God, but to be a reflection of the likeness of the character of the nature of God, right? So we love because God loves. We forgive because God forgives. There's a beautiful verse in the New Testament that says, you know, in, in the book of Ephesians, it says to be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Beautiful passage. So here you have this. So then verse 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God who created the male and female. So there's this beautiful dynamic here. We understand that the best way to understand how to be a human, how to be a person, is to be like God. And again, I'm not talking about creative powers, or or, or, I'm talking about the, the character of God. Then day six ends, day seven begins, and we understand that God finishes his work and then what does he do? I believe what he does is he's going to give humanity the first lesson of what it's like to not just be an image bearer of God, but to walk in his likeness, to, 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 to be a, a almost like a trumpet of the character of God. What's the first thing God does? Is God observes the Sabbath. God's first lesson to humanity is keeping the Sabbath. And I think it's brilliant. It's a, so I picture Adam, you're alive for 24 hours. You're alive. God's like, all right, let's go name all the animals. Life's great. Very next day, God says, I'm going to get, I'm going to teach you something. It's the first thing I'm going to teach you. And this is going to be a secret to living a long, healthy life. This is going to actually be the key of living a holy life. Before we're ever given a law, before we're ever given a commandment, we are taught about the Sabbath. And, he, and, and he's teaching it to Adam, who's the father of all humankind. 
all of humanity. So I have to believe that the observance of the Sabbath, and again, not just on Sunday, but the Sabbath, the day that God says, this is the day God has created this ordinance, that this is a time I've set aside as a gift to stop, to rest, to reflect, and to enjoy. That's our first lesson as, uh, as, as being human. It's, it's so intrinsic. It's such an intrinsic part of the human experience, in my opinion. Well, and what you said earlier is, is, is so so magnificent as well, which is when God creates the Sabbath, he also creates sacred time. And, yeah. and he's telling us, you can make time sacred. And I, and I think that each time our family does Shabbat, particularly Shabbat dinner, when we have family and friends over, you can feel an experience. And this is not just of us. Anybody can feel and experience that this is a sacred time. Absolutely. Whatever one's notion of sacred is, you kind of understand what sacred is. Whatever your notion is coming in, you understand what sacred is, whether you're Jew or Christian, when you do a Shabbat dinner. Absolutely. You know, I was, um, there's, uh, we know the, the great rabbi, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote my right. favorite book, my favorite book ever written is The Sabbath by Heschel. It's a brilliant, yep. brilliant book. And he, he introduces this concept that has been one of the most life-changing concepts for me as a believer of God, as one who loves the Bible. And it's the idea that every Sabbath, eternity comes into time. That six days a week, we live strictly within the realm of time, if that makes sense. But on the Sabbath, eternity and time become one. And he says it so beautifully. He says, every Sabbath is a picture of the Messianic age. It's not just a call to stop, but it's, it's even almost like this hope that comes on us that there's going to come a time in history that we're waiting for. You know, for us as Christians, it's the second coming of Christ. For, for Jews, it's the first coming of the Messiah. We're waiting for someone to come, whether right. it's his first coming or second coming. There's this hope that he's bringing something with him. And and this this whole concept is followed up in the New Testament beautifully. To, it's a book called Hebrews because it's written to Jews. It's written to Hebrews. And there's this beautiful exposition, and he's tying it to Psalm 95, where he says, essentially, David says, today, if you do not harden your heart as in the day of rebellion, there is a sap, you will enter his rest. In other words, that there is the rest that we experience every week, but then there's a rest that's coming. It's almost this reminder. And I think like, look at everything that's happening in our world. One of the purposes of the Sabbath isn't just to stop, but it's actually to stop and remember that what's no matter how dark the next few years might be, how difficult, if the economy collapses, doesn't collapse, we are hoping for a time, not a president, not a place. We're hoping for a time that Messiah is going to bring to the earth and it's going to be better. And that time is called the age of rest. It's the Sabbath age that God's going to bring all of creation, all of humanity. We see it in Isaiah, the lion and the lamb lay down, the child's playing with the cobra. It's this picture of rest. And so the Sabbath, I think, isn't just, you know, it's, it's, it's actually reminding us that we're living for something so much more than the immediate. We're living for so much more than 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 whatever it is that we're living for. That there's some there's so much more to life than what we can see right now. Absolutely, Jose. Thank you for such a fascinating discussion and for being such a a great friend now for almost many years. But there's one one final question, which is um, unrelated specifically to the text at hand, which derives from um, Andre Malraux's 1968 book Anti Memoir, where he says that he um, he just ran into somebody um, with whom he had served in the war. And he said, this man has saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said to this man, in all your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, well, I've learned two things. One is that everyone is much less happy than he seems. 
And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> so, uh, Jose, in your years in the ministry, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? I think two things I've learned about mankind is this. Number one, I think that we depend too much on people's opinions about us. I think it's one of the biggest things that, that I have discovered is I think that we live, we breathe, we, 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 we allow people's opinion about us to, to, to too much to shape our identity, to shape our future. And um, actually, that guy was talking about Jason Upton is a beautiful saying. He says that true freedom is when people's opinions about you are no longer your business. And the second thing is I think even the worst among us has the ability to love. Even the worst among us has the ability uh, uh, to be childlike. And, and uh, case in point, uh, so I, I love film, studying film history. Most people don't know this. Hitler's favorite movie was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the, 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 the cartoon. It was the movie he requested the most. And I, for me, I find that to be absolutely fascinating. You have probably the worst leader in history, some of the, the, the most atrocious disasters to humanity, but his favorite movie was this Disney cartoon. And what it tells me is this, and this is my opinion, and I, and I really believe this. I don't believe that there's a single person, no matter how wicked, how despicable, how evil, that's too far from being loved and too far from being saved. Just to close that thought out, I remember when I first became a Christian, my family's from Cuba. I was raised to hate Fidel Castro. I mean, hated him. My family had to leave the homeland, did atrocious things. And I remember the first thing that my pastor taught me, this, and this might seem trivial to some, but was that as a Christian, I, I can't hate Fidel anymore. I now have to pray for him. And I have to believe that God could change him. And, and, and it taught me this lesson that even the worst, the farthest from us, though the worst among us can be saved and can be loved. Now, Jose, you just said uh, when you became a Christian, and I just wanted to to yeah. go in for a moment as to what that means. Because from a Jewish perspective, there's no notion of when I became a Jew. When did I become a Jew? The moment I was born. I mean, it's not, yeah. a, you know, it's not, a, not an individual choice. You become a, you, you're, you're just a Jew. But you said when I became a Christian. I presume you were born to Christian parents or... Nominal Gentile. Catholic. Yeah, okay. Gentile, nominal Catholic. Uh, it, so, yeah, so talk Christian... about, about, about your journey from to where you are now, from, from obviously from then to where you are now. Yeah, you know, so I, I was raised in Miami, Florida. My family, like most Hispanics are nominal Catholics. That means Easter, Christmas, funerals, weddings. I mean, that that was my, I had no concept of the Bible, no understanding of anything to do with God from an early age, really young, was, was drugs. It just became a really, really, really angry atheist. I mean, you know, there's, it wasn't like intellectual atheism. It was like angry atheism, hated God. No reason, it was never abused. Just, just raised this way, wanted nothing to do with God. I went to school with a few Christians, and and they'd be in the bus, you know, reading their Bibles, and I would take it, I'd throw their their Bibles on the floor, and and I was I was anti-Semitic. I started a band. This is horrible, but I started a band with a friend of mine called Hitler's Toy Box, and, and now you know it was just just anything to be hateful. So Christians, Jews, and and really really dark, really angry really dark, really, really, really angry kid. And, you know, when I was about 15 years old, the best way I explain it is, man, I, I had a genuine encounter with God. It, what you know, for me, it was, I, I know it sounds so ridiculous. I, I didn't, I didn't find Jesus at a church service in my darkness, you know, suicidal, depressed, having thoughts even about 
murder. I mean, just crazy things that were going through my mind. The best way I could explain it is I, I, I experienced the love of God in a tangible way. Do you remember um, where you were? Was this was this this happened in an instant? Or was it was it like it was, it was like a like series of a few weeks. It, it, it's like you've lived in a room with the light off your whole life. Somebody turns the light switch on, and now I'm wrestling with a God's real and God loves me. How can God love me? Because if I listed out all the the wicked the, the horrible things I'd done to people, you know, I, I'm I'm just no way I can be loved by God, and you know. And I understood this to be Jesus. And so, you know, in Christianity, the difference is you're not born a Christian. No one's born a Christian. You know, my wife and I are expecting our, our, our first child in about eight weeks. She won't be born a Christian. She'll have to make her own personal decision to follow Jesus. And, I, you know, I think it's like picking a rabbi and choosing that rabbi. She has to make this decision. And so I, I, I made that decision right before I turned 16 years old. And my life was, was completely radically transformed. I was full of hate. I mean, I hated so much. I was so hateful and really violent in my heart, really perverted. And, and within a matter of months, I, I fell in love. So I was compulsed to start loving. And, and my whole paradigm, my whole outlook in life changed. And then, you know, a few years after that, in my Christian experience, I found out that there were these people called Jews in Israel. I'd always known about Jews and I had Jewish friends. I grew up in Miami Beach, so a very big Jewish population, but no real connection. And as I began to love God and love what God loves, I fell in love with the Jewish people. And it, so it's been this incredible journey. And so I say that, you know, the two biggest things that God's done for me is freed me of what people think about me. I was always so depressed. I was so uh, worried about what people would think. I lived this lie and I would always put on this facade. And number two, you know, I was the most unlovable, most unqualified person to be loved. And I was loved. And, and that's changed my life. And now I want to love. I want to, I want to give back that same measure of love that I've experienced. And, you know, that's been this journey that I've been on now for, you know, 16, 17 years. Well, I know that, that, that your love of the Jewish people, the Jewish religion, and the Jewish state has been deeply important and very inspiring for so many, both those who know you directly and those who only know you by your work. Well, thank you. And, and honestly, thank you for your hospitality. I know it takes, takes a lot of trust on your part. You, you, and, you and Rabbi Erica have just been stellar examples and, and just beautiful, just opening up your home to a bunch of crazy Gentiles sometimes. Well, God willing, we'll be able to start doing uh, those uh, big Shabbat dinners and other celebrations again uh, sometime soon. So. Looking forward to it. Well, Jose, thank you so much for such a fascinating discussion. My privilege, and thank you for having me, Mark. 